0: First Baptist Melbourne podcast, making disciples here and everywhere for the glory of God. If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, do you turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1. As we continue to walk through this amazing letter that Paul wrote to the Ephesians, in these weeks we are looking at verses 3 through 14 of chapter 1. Uh, which, as we said last week, is really just uh, one really long sentence in the original Greek language that the New Testament was written in. And uh, like we said last week, Paul starts out this letter really with just an outburst of praise and and worship. It's like he can't contain himself, And, and he just, as the Spirit inspires him, just one reason after the next comes tumbling out, of uh, why we have uh, reason to praise and to bless our God. And I-, I love that in this opening paragraph, every member of our triune God is, uh, is mentioned. Uh, last week, we studied verses three through six and looked at the work of God the Father, what he has done uh, to save us, particularly how he chose us in Christ uh, before the foundation of the world. Next week, we're gonna jump to the end and, and, and look at uh, the work of the Holy Spirit in our salvation. But today we're looking at the middle of this section of praise, verses 7 through 10, uh, which is really very fitting because on this day, uh, where in a few minutes we're going to come to the Lord's Supper table, which is a picture of what Christ has done on the cross through his body and through his blood to save us. We're going to see the same thing today in this passage in the word of God, the saving work of God the Son. And so let's read these verses together as we begin. Ephesians 1, beginning in verse 7. In him, that is in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace, which he made to abound towards us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself that in the dispensation of the fullness of times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. Father, we pray now as we study uh, these words. Father, your word that you have given to us, Lord, help us to see it, to understand it, Lord, to apply it, to believe it. Uh, Father, show us what you have done for us through your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, I ask if there's anyone here today that hasn't yet trusted in Christ as their Lord and their Savior, uh, that even today, Father, they might understand more of your love for them, what you did at the cross, and that they would open up their heart to believe and trust in you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We're thinking about our identity In this series. And I love the first two words of the passage that we just read because those two words really define for us what our identity should be all about. Verse 7 starts out with the two words in him. If you look down at verse 10 you'll see twice in that passage a similar phrase in Christ and then in him. Now, Altogether, if you look at the first verses of this chapter here in Ephesians, that the phrase, either the phrase in Christ or the phrase in him, shows up a total of 11 times. But when you read all of Paul's letters that we have in the New Testament, that phrase in Christ shows up more than 160 times. That, that's how central in Christ is to what it means to be a Christian. This is who we are if we know Jesus as our Savior. More than anything else, we are people in Christ. To be in Christ means that we are united with Christ and his death and his burial and his resurrection. To be in Christ means that He lives in us. It means that we live in Him. To be in Christ means that He is our Savior, that He is our Lord, that He is our King. To be in Him means that We live for his glory and not for our own. To be in Christ means that we're longing and yearning for the return of Christ. To be in Christ means that he made me. It means that he bought me. It means that he saved me. It means that I belong to him. To be in Christ means that everything I am and everything I have is because of Jesus Christ. Now, friend, let me ask you, is that how you see yourself? If someone were to ask you to tell a little bit about yourself, what are some of the things that you might say? What are some of the descriptions I might give if someone were to ask me that? I don't know what I would say. Maybe I would say, you know, I'm I'm a Floridian. I'm a native Floridian. That's a rare. That's a rare thing. (laughs) Obviously, I would say, you know, I'm a white guy. I would say I'm a bald guy. I would say I'm. I'm married. I have four sons. I'm a pastor. But how far down the list would I have to get to? How far down the list would you have to get to before you would say, I'm a Christian? I'm in Christ. It really should be number one, shouldn't it? It's what defines us. This is really what should lead the way on our Twitter profile and our Facebook profile, isn't it? That we are in Christ. Christ, because this is what defines our identity both now and in the age to come. It's who we are. We say, well, why are you spending so much time on the first two words of this passage? Why, why does our identity matter so much? Well, it matters an awful lot because when we build our identity on something else, when we make our core identity around Anything else but Christ, what our income level is, what we do for a living, what our family status is, what our race is, what our politics are, whatever it might be. When we make our identity wrapped around something else, we're making something else to be more important than it actually is. We're wrapping our identity around something that is not eternally secure, something that is not the primary thing that is true about us. But when we make our identity about who God says that we are in Christ, we cannot be shaken. We cannot be moved. I wish that every Christian teenager and every Christian young adult knew that their identity was secure in Jesus Christ. I wish that they all knew that they don't, they don't have to be in the in group because they're already in by the grace of God. I wish that they knew that they don't have to get a million likes on their Instagram posts because they're already loved by the one who matters most in the universe. I wish that they knew that they don't have to be all that popular because they're already a part of the population of the kingdom of heaven. I I wish that they knew that they don't have to have a seat at the cool table because they're already seated at Christ's table. In Christ. You know, a really helpful exercise if you've never done it is just to take out a clean sheet of paper and put it on the table beside your copy of the Bible. Just read through Paul's letter to the Ephesians and write down every single thing that it says is true about you if you are in Christ. And write my identity at the top of the page. This is who you are. This is who I am in Christ. Now, certainly this morning, we don't have time to go through the whole book of Ephesians. We're just going to look at four verses in Ephesians. But in these four verses, there are at least five reasons why we have to bless our God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, in Christ Jesus. In these four verses, there are five reasons to praise God because of the work of God the Son. And here's the first one. We can praise God that in Christ, we have redemption. In Christ, we have redemption. We see that in verse 7. In Him, we have redemption through his blood. Now the Bible gives us a lot of different ways to understand what happened at the moment of our salvation if indeed we have been saved. But this is one of the most beautiful. That we have been redeemed. The, the word redeemed means to be released from captivity, to be released from slavery because someone has paid a ransom price that was necessary to set a person free. The ultimate example of redemption in the Old Testament is what happened in the days of the Exodus. The people of God, the Israelites, were in bondage. They were in slavery in Egypt under their taskmasters. But God raised up Moses and through Moses and through the ten plagues, God redeemed his people. That's the language that the Bible used. He brought them out. He delivered them and brought them out of bondage and brought them eventually into the promised land. But redemption isn't just how we are to understand salvation in the Old Testament. Paul says here in Ephesians, it's how we need to understand our salvation as well. Our salvation was a redemption. And notice the present tense. We have this redemption. In him, we have redemption through his blood. Now, there's at least four elements of redemption, and each one is so important to understanding our salvation. The first element of redemption, redemption starts out, as we just said, with slavery. Again, the word redeem means to buy someone out of bondage, to buy them out of slavery. Now, in the Old Testament, it's easy to see that the Israelites were literally in bondage, right? They were literally slaves, Of the Egyptian. But someone today might say, well, you know, I'm not like that. I'm not a slave. I've never been a slave. I've never been in bondage. I'm an American. I'm free. I I live in the land of the free, the home of the brave. And so what are you talking about when you say slavery? Well, the reality is that a lot of people, in fact, most of the people living in this land of the free are not actually free. According to the word of God, according to the Bible, those who do not know Christ are completely enslaved on the inside in the way that really matters most to their own sinful desires. Jesus one day was speaking to a group of Jewish leaders who thought that they were already free. And they said to Jesus, we're Abraham's descendants. We've never been in bondage to anybody. Must have forgotten about that Egypt episode. But they said, we've never been in bondage to anybody. What do you mean, Jesus, saying that we're slaves? Jesus responded with these words in John 8, 34. Jesus answered them, most assuredly, I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. Whoever commits sin, well, that's all of us in this room, right? We've all committed sin. Jesus said, if you've committed sin, you're a slave of sin. And so according to Jesus, until we meet him, we're slaves to sin. We can't get free on our own. We can't break sin's power. We can't undo the shame. We can't undo the guilt. We can't take the stain away. We're, we're trapped. We're in a prison of our own making, a prison of our sin. We're in bondage, and it's why we need redemption. It's why we need the second element of redemption, which is the Redeemer. Because we're all in bondage to sin, and we couldn't get out on our own. We needed a Redeemer who would come and who would pay the ransom price that was owed to set us free and that redeemer is the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what Jesus said in Mark 10:45. He said for even the son of man referring to himself did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom there's that word a ransom for many. Jesus came to be our redeemer, the one who would set us free. And just like that verse says in Mark 10, in order to do that, he knew that he would have to pay the ransom price. That's element number three, the ransom price. In verse seven, it says, In him we have redemption through his blood. That's the ransom price that had to be paid. In the Old Testament in Leviticus, it says that there is no forgiveness of sin without the shedding of blood. And the shedding of an animal sacrifice would not do, our own blood would not be enough. No, it had to be the perfect, righteous blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In a moment, as we come to the Lord's Supper and as we take the cup, that's a symbol of the blood of Christ. We remember the words that Peter wrote in 1 Peter 1. He said, Knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spots. We not only belong to Jesus because he made us, But we belong to Jesus because after we ran away from the Lord in our sinful state, he in effect bought us back by paying the ransom price that was owed. You know, whenever I think about that truth, I can't help but think about a a little story that our pastor emeritus, Brother Larry, uh, used to tell very often when I was a boy. I remember him sharing this uh, many times. It's a story about a little boy named Billy. Billy grew up on the shores of one of the great lakes, and he loved fishing, he loved the outdoors, he loved sailing. And he loved sailing so much that one day, or one summer, he spent several months with his father building a little sailboat, and built it all, and carved it, and sanded it, and painted it, and painted it red and blue. And this little beautiful sailboat that he had now, it was just a prized possession. And what he would do is he'd take that sailboat down along the water's edge and he'd hold it with a string and he'd kind of walk along the side of the water with it and play with it. But one day as, as little Billy was doing that, a big gust of wind came up and it, it ripped the string right out of Billy's hand and, and the boat just started slipping away further than he could reach and it went out into the lake and eventually it was clear out of his sight. And Billy went home that day and he was crushed. He was devastated. Nobody could even console him. He was so upset about that little boat thought he would never get it back. But a few weeks later, he was walking down the street in in his hometown there, and he passed by a a window of a toy shop. And he looked in the window of that shop, and there was a a little sailboat there. And it was a little red and blue sailboat. And and the closer he looked at it, he said, that's my boat. And he was so excited. He ran into the store, and he talked to the clerk, and he said, sir, mister, that's the boat. My dad and I built that boat that's in your window. Can I please have my boat back?" But the store owner said, well, no, son, I, a, a fisherman brought this boat to me and I paid good money for this this boat. And, and, and if you want it back, you're going to need to pay full price for this. The boy understood and he he ran home and he emptied out everything he had been saving in his piggy bank and he took all that money back to the store and he ran as fast as he could and he laid it on the counter and he had just enough to buy his little boat back. And and so as he took that little red and blue sailboat in his hands and he started walking down the street back home with it, he looked at that boat and he said, little boat, you're, you're twice mine. I made you and now I bought you. And Christian, don't you understand the same thing is true for you? And the same thing is true for me. We are twice gods. He made us, but then he bought us. And that's why we're a part of this fourth element of redemption, which is the redeemed. We're a part of the redeemed. We are the ones that have been redeemed by the grace of God, who've been redeemed from our slavery to sin by the blood of Jesus Christ. We have been set free. And if you've been set free from bondage, that's something you never get over, isn't it? It shouldn't be. It shouldn't be something that we ever forget. It should be something that we always talk about, that we always sing about, that we always speak about. That I once was a slave to sin, but now I am free in Christ. I love how Psalm 107 puts it. It says, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. We're redeemed. You know, that's One reason we should praise God that in Christ we have redemption. We we should also praise God that in Christ we have, number two, forgiveness. Forgiveness of our sin. Not only have we been set free from slavery to sin and the bondage of sin, but our sin has been forgiven if we are in Christ. Verse 7 says, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. The word that's used there for forgiveness is a word that means to send something away or to let something go. Uh, We know that the Lord cannot just let our sin go and do nothing about it and continue to be the just, righteous, holy God that he is. And that's why this phrase, the forgiveness of sin, comes right after the phrase we just talked about, redemption through his blood. It's because of the blood of Christ. It's because the ransom price for our sin has already been paid in full. That is why we can read that next sentence, that next phrase, the forgiveness of our sin. It's why our sin can be sent away and we can be free because he paid for it. It reminds me of a, the well-known story that Jesus told about the good Samaritan. Now you remember the story, the Samaritan who saw the man who was beaten up on the side of the road, left for dead, and he went over and he tended to his wounds. He put him on his own animal, he took him to the inn, and he paid for his care, and he said, and, and whatever else it takes to, to pay for him to get well, you just put it on my account. Now we know that ultimately the Lord is our good Samaritan. The Lord Jesus is the one who saw all of us on the side of the road, beaten up, left for dead in our sinful condition, and yet he had mercy on us and he came to us and he picked us up and he took us and he carried us and he said, whatever it costs to set them free, whatever it costs to pay for their sin, put it on my account. And he has put it on his account and he has paid for it in full. And that's why our sin can be sent away. And God hasn't just sent our sin a little bit away. No, what it says in Psalm 103 is this, for as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his mercy towards those who fear him, as far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. As far as the east is from the west is another way of saying as far as possible. God has sent our sin away and it's not coming back. Is anybody happy about that today? I know I am. You know, it's a beautiful thing. If you think about it, you know, when you've hurt someone that you love, it it is a beautiful thing when God moves in their heart in such a way that they're able to look at you and they're able to say those words, I forgive you, isn't it? How much more of a beautiful thing is it when the God of the universe, the God who made you, looks at you and because of what Christ has done, he's able to speak those words to you, I forgive forgive you. And that forgiveness that he offers, he never takes back. He has forgiven us of our sin because it's been paid in full, and he's taken it as far away as the east is from the west. We should praise God today that in Christ we have redemption, that in Christ we have forgiveness, also in Christ we have received overflowing grace. Now, we won't spend as long here, but look with me at at verse 7, the beginning of verse 8. It says, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace, which he made to abound towards us. The the word abound there, some translations say lavish. Uh, I love that he has lavished his grace upon us. Uh, Our God is rich in grace. And he's not miserly, he's not skimpy with the way that he doles out his grace, is he? No, he lavishes that grace upon us. It also says that he has done these things for us in accordance or according to the riches of his grace. Many people have pointed out, you know, there's a difference between someone who gives from their wealth and someone who gives in accordance with their wealth. You know, if you were to go up to a multi, multi, multi multi-millionaire, right, and to ask for a donation for charity and they were to give you, you know, five bucks, they're giving to you from their wealth. But if they were to give you $10,000, $20,000, $50,000 right now, now they're giving to you according to their wealth. Well, that's the way that it says the Lord has given us his grace. He's given us grace in accordance with the riches of that grace, and his grace will never run out. There will never be a shortage. The pipeline will never run dry. That's why the apostle Paul wrote in Romans 5, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. Amen. So thankful that it has. Praise God today that in Christ we have redemption, we have forgiveness, we have grace, but also number four, we have been given in Christ wisdom and insight. Verse eight says this, it says, which he made to abound towards us in all wisdom and prudence. Now, some people believe that that phrase wisdom and prudence refers to God's wisdom and God's prudence. But I agree with those commentators who say that that phrase actually goes with what precedes it, that this is a part of the grace that God has lavished upon us, that he has given us wisdom and prudence. Wisdom is a a word that just refers to a basic understanding of the most important things in life. The word prudence or insight refers to a practical understanding. How do we put that spiritual knowledge into effect and into place in the everyday affairs of our life? God not only saves us in Christ, but in Christ, who is the wisdom of God, he gives us wisdom. He gives us the insight, the knowledge that we need to be able to live a life that pleases the Lord. Paul wrote elsewhere that that wisdom has been hidden from the world, but it's been revealed to us through Jesus. Look at these words from 1 Corinthians. He said, "...however we speak wisdom among those who are mature, yet not the wisdom of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing, but we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery." the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages for our glory. Verse 12, now we have received not the spirit of this world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. In Christ, we have been given wisdom. We've been given grace. We've been given forgiveness. We've been given redemption. But before we come to the Lord's table, there's one more reason we have to praise God one more reason why we have to lift him up and to extol him, and it's because of how in Christ God has given us a hope and a future. Part of the wisdom and insight God has given us as believers is the understanding of where everything is heading, the understanding of what is coming in the end and what history and this world and our lives are really all about. And you begin to see that in verse nine, where Paul writes, having made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself. You know, when I see the word mystery there, whenever I hear the word mystery, in my mind, I go back to think about mysteries. I think about Hardy Boy books, and I think about Matlock, and I think about Columbo, And I think about in more modern times, psych and shows like that, right? I think about mysteries and and, and whodunits and and figuring those things out. But that's, that's not what the Bible means by the word mystery. The mystery that Paul was talking about here is a mystery that was hidden in the days of old, but has now been revealed. And part of that mystery is what we're going to see in the rest of Ephesians that that Jews and Gentiles have all been brought together as a part of the people of God, the church built on the foundation of Jesus Christ. But part of that mystery is God's purpose in Christ in the age, in the age to come. And that's what verse 10 is really all about. He said that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ. Both which are in heaven and which are on earth in Him. The word dispensation there means the administration or, or really even just the plan. God is telling us in His Word what His ultimate plan for the universe really is. <clears throat> you know, I know the summer <clears throat> just started a few weeks ago. Uh, I wonder, though, are there any parents here who have already heard the words from your kids I'm bored? How many of you have already, already heard? I've heard that many, many times. It's been like two weeks. I'm thinking I'm bored. <laughs> if you're bored, go get a job, son. That's what I need you to do. <laughs> I'm about to have to sell a kidney to buy a gallon of gas. You could maybe help out, you know, here a little bit, you know, in this situation. I'm bored, but but they are bored, and so sometimes, you know, when I get home, you know, they'll run up and 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 they'll ask me, you know, well, what's the plan, Dad? What's the plan? I'm saying, I just got home from work. My plan is to sit down. What's your plan? <laughs> what's the plan? You know, you know, in a sense, we all want to know what the plan is. We're all asking our Father in heaven, what's the plan? Not, not just what's the plan for tonight, not just what's the plan for the summer, not just what's the plan for the next five or ten years. Well, what's the plan for eternity? He tells us what the plan is in verse 10 that he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. That's the plan to gather together all things in one. You know, that word gather together is a, is a special word. The word means to, to sum something up. It, it's like when you're in a debate and you made all these different arguments, all these different points in, in your argumentation. And at the very end, you kind of wrap it all up, right? You, you summarize it all, you sum it up. God is saying here that at the end of history when every chapter and every page and every sentence in and, and the history of, of this world and this age has been written that at the very end, the very last sentence, God's gonna sum everything up in one sentence and that sentence is Jesus Christ is Lord. Everything will be summarized in him. That's where this is heading. At the end of the age, everyone will see that Jesus Christ is king everyone will see that the cross of Christ was the defining moment of all of history everyone will see that Jesus is the focal point of it all everyone will see that as Paul said in Philippians that on that day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father that's the plan that's that's where it's heading now, what does it mean when it says all things will be one in him? Well, certainly Paul is not teaching universalism here. He's not teaching that everyone will be saved on that day. No, he's saying that Jesus will be what unifies and restores all of God's people and all of the created order. I love how John Stott put it when he said this, quote, "...in the fullness of time, God's two creations..." his whole universe and his whole church will be unified under the cosmic Christ who is the supreme head of both. And so to borrow Stott's language, this verse means that one day all things will be one in Christ, including the whole church. That's the church made up of all denominations around the world, all those who've been saved and covered in the blood of Jesus Christ, every tribe, every tongue, every people group brought together as one. What a beautiful day. On that day, the church in heaven, the saints who have already gone before us and the church that's here on earth will be one, will be unified in Christ. And not just the whole church, but also in Christ, the whole universe. The universe that Romans 8 says right now is in bondage and is crying out to be redeemed. One day, when that redemption fully comes The curse of sin will be lifted. What has been torn, what has been unraveled, what has been ripped apart, Christ will sew it back together. He'll make it whole. He'll make it one. He'll make it new. That's where it's heading. That's the plan. It's what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15. He said, for he, God the Father, has put all things under his, under Christ's feet But when he says all things are put under him, it's evident that he who put all things under him is accepted. Now, when all things are made subject to him, then the son himself will also be subject to him who put all things under him, that God may be all in all. That's where it's heading. Christ is king of kings. He's Lord of lords. God the Father is right now in the process of submitting and putting all things under his feet. But, but here is the thing, church, and, and we need to take this to our hearts today as we get ready to come to the Lord's table. This same Christ who is the king of the universe, this same Christ who one day all things will be put under his feet, this same Christ knows you. This same Christ loves you. This same Christ shed his blood to redeem you. This same Christ is the one who says, if you are in him, I forgive you. You are his and he is yours and you will always be in Christ. If you don't yet know him in a personal way, I, I pray that even today you might come to know him. I wanna give you the opportunity at the end of this service to make that choice to open up your heart to the Lord, to believe in him, receive him as your savior.